Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We chose to start a company. None of us had done that before. We chose to start a company in a different country, which is always difficult. We didn't have any connections with investors or anyone in the sports world. And we didn't even know the rules of, of football, like American football. Like, we knew nothing. Hello, and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello and welcome to this week's show. Have you ever felt totally blindsided and ripped off? Well, that's a tough one. Maybe, yeah. Well, that's what happened to our guest this week, who spent more than 10 years building a startup into a huge success, only to find the company sold from under her without seeing a cent. Just two years later, the business was valued at over $11 billion. Far out. Billion, 11 billion. How gut-wrenching that must have been. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt that serial Scottish entrepreneur Leslie Eccles has ridden the startup roller coaster on a grand scale. But what I think we both find so incredible and inspiring is how she's bounced back from the devastating loss of her and her co-founder's first business, FanDuel, to focus on starting all over again with a completely different business. Yeah, exactly. And this time with a business that's super mission-driven and important to her, all about strengthening human relationships. She's brought her knowledge of running a technology business and has built the number one relationship and self-care app, Relish. I know, I'm sure some people must have thought Leslie was a sucker for punishment diving back in to found another global startup. But as she says, she felt she had no alternative. In this episode, you'll learn how Leslie, her husband and three other co-founders weren't sure if their startup would be successful until they were seven years in. Incredible. How their team, headquartered in Scotland, managed to become successful in the US market of fantasy sports when they started out knowing absolutely nothing about it. What lessons Leslie learned as a result of the gut-wrenching sale of FanDuel, and why Relish, her new business, is all about making the world a happier place. Leslie's story is really remarkable, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with the resilient and gutsy Leslie Eccles. Leslie Eccles, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Hello there, it's great to be here. 
Oh, well, we're very excited to have you on the show and learn more about your incredible journey. As you may have heard from other episodes, the question we love to start with all of our guests is, if you were at a dinner party and meeting someone you hadn't met before and they said, what do you do, Leslie? How would you answer them briefly? So I think one of the things that I like to do is kind of mess with people a little bit. <laughs> I've seen myself often at dinner before COVID, obviously, with a group of guys in particular in, in tech and they'll kind of, you know, ask me what I do. And I'll just kind of be quite nonchalant, just say, oh, you know, I'm in technology or whatever. And then slowly over the course of the evening, I let it slip that I founded FanDuel, which is the largest sports betting company in the US. So many times I've seen jaws literally drop to the floor where <laughs> these guys are like, wait, you founded FanDuel? <laughs> it's kind of fun. But I try to be quite... I don't know what the right word is, but maybe humble, like that sounds a bit weird, but I don't like to brag. Right. And, you know, sitting as you are right now in New York state, you know, that's not actually the standard modus operandi with, I generalize horribly here with North Americans, is it? So um, that, that must kind of take people by surprise. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I love this country to bits, but Scottish people, I'm originally from Scotland. I've lived in America for about five years. Scottish people are quite different to Americans and we tend to play things down. And that's just, I guess, who I am. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to explore sort of a bit later in our discussion whether that's ever backfired. I know I can think of one situation where I was in a room with Americans and I sort of started to be kind of, you know, self-effacing and humble and it really backfired because they took me literally and it was like, oh, hang on, I've got to play catch up now. <laughs> now, you say you're Scottish and we can certainly hear that accent. How would you describe your childhood? So I grew up in a small town on the east coast of Scotland. About 15,000 people live there. Grew up, mom and dad, one sister, fairly ha happy childhood, spent a lot of time reading. That was kind of my main hobby as a child, or just playing out in the street with the other kids. In the days before devices, my goodness, it was a happy, happy childhood. And what was the young Leslie like? Was she sports mad, given you went on to found this amazing sort of sports betting company? Quite the opposite, honestly. I was not into sports at all. And in fact, one of the things I really liked about my husband when I first met him was that he wasn't into watching sports on TV and, you know, he played sports, but he wasn't really into watching it. And, you know, fast forward a few years and we ended up starting a sports company, but it certainly wasn't my background. What did you imagine you might do when you were sort of a grown up, when you were, say, in your teens? Well, when I was a child, I really wanted to be a butcher, which is bizarre. <laughs> never heard that. A meat-loving child. <laughs> my mum used to buy packets of ground beef just for me to play with, which is really bizarre. And then when I got a little older, I decided that I wanted to be a soldier. I wanted to go and join the army, which for a five foot two skinny little girl from Scotland came as a bit of a surprise to my parents, I think. The theme was really just I wanted to kind of surprise people and, and shock them in some way and do something different. And, you know, my poor parents just sort of nodded and, and were very supportive and said, if that's what you want to do, dear, that's fine. Now, thankfully, I, I ended up not running off at 16 and joining the army. But there was a kind of ongoing theme of how can I do something that's just a little different and make my work mark somehow. 
Yeah, and that theme seems to have continued for sure. Because you then went on to study languages, I think, at the University of St. Andrews. And then after that, you joined a software startup. How did that happen? Yeah, so when I was at university, I remember going to the careers office And at that time, it was folders of information. There was no computers or whatever to access at that point. And every folder contained a different job description. I literally spent the day in there reading every single job description and finding nothing that interested me that I could do with a language degree. And the only things that really interested me, you needed a science degree or a maths degree. So I thought, well one option would be to go down the technology route and, you know, get in through marketing or administration or something like that, and then see what I can do to hustle my way into a more exciting role. And that's pretty much what I did. I started with a really small startup in Scotland, and this was pre-internet. This was like the sort of mid to late 90s. And then I spent a couple of years there, and then I moved to London And in London, I didn't actually have a job. I just moved there. My now husband had just graduated. So the two of us decided we'd both go to London. And I got a temporary position in a management consultancy in London and basically hustled my way into their graduate scheme, even although I met none of the criteria for getting in in terms of I had a modern languages degree, which wasn't useful to them. But, you know, just through talking to the right people and working really hard, basically. You know, that's kind of been the theme through my life. It's not that I'm like super smart or super well qualified. It's just that I work really hard. (laughs) Yeah. And that theme of hustling sounds like it's really coming through. I think you did eight years in consulting. What was the trigger for you then to start in your first sort of entrepreneurial gig, which I think you started with your husband? Yeah. So this would have been in 2007. We were living in London at the time. I was on maternity leave. I just had my first child and was pregnant with my second child. My husband decided to apply for a job up in Scotland, which is where I'm from. I was all for it. I said, okay, I'm not really ready to leave London yet, but I really want to go and live in Edinburgh. I've always loved Edinburgh. So he remarkably got the job in a very, very short period of time. Like I think it was like two weeks from seeing the ad to actually being offered the job. And so off we trotted up to Edinburgh. And after about six months in his new job, he was miserable and he hated it. And he said, I want to just start up. I'd just had my second child at the time. And I thought, well, this is not really ideal timing. You know, we just take a big mortgage, we've got a toddler and a, and a newborn. This does not seem like the most sensible of options. But I knew that he was desperately passionate about it. And I just thought, you know what, if we don't do this now, it's only going to get harder as the kids get older. We should just do it. We should just try. And it's an adventure and see what happens. And I, re- I still remember saying that to him. I said, okay, let's just do it. And again, it, maybe it was the shock factor. He was like, are you sure? <laughs> and I said, yeah, let's do it. Put your money where your mouth is. And so we did. What do you think it is about you or your upbringing or your personality that gives you that risk sort of appetite? 
Mm-hmm. I'd love to say that I'm a gambler, but I'm absolutely not. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I'm actually very sensible, but I just take sort of, I guess, calculated risks. And I always figured at the time, you know, if if worse comes to the worst, we can just go and move in with your mom. You know, that was kind of like our fallback plan was to move in with my mother-in-law. And, you know, as long as I have a fallback plan, I'm happy enough to take those more calculated risks. But, you know, one of the challenges with building a company with your husband is often there's not a fallback plan. You're both all in. And it's not as if one of us had a sensible job that was paying the bills while the other one went off and had the startup adventure. We were both in it together, which means that you have no choice but to succeed. And it really was that sort of fear of failure that drove us a lot of the time with building FanDuel. Yeah. And so the first company you set up was called Hub dub wasn't it and then you did this really big pivot can you talk us through how you sort of decided to make that pivot necessity I think is the word we had taken funding from a VC we'd been working on the company for about a year and we'd taken funding and shortly after we took that initial round of funding we raised about a million dollars but then in late 2008 the financial crisis hit And we realized pretty quickly that, you know, we had to get real about how we were going to monetize our product. And that was when we came up with the idea behind FanDuel. It was really driven by noticing the amount of engagement that we saw in HubDub around the sports category. So we just figured, you know, sports is so engaging. There's got to be something here that we can come up with that will be a new type of product around sports. And one of our customers that we knew really well, he was into fantasy football and he was talking to us about it. And we started to think, well, is there an opportunity here to disrupt this marketplace? This is a game in America. It's if you're predominantly white male, 25 to 55, you're going to be in a fantasy football league. And the more that we learned about it, the more that we thought there were opportunities to make the whole experience a lot better for people. And that must have been such an experience because I I think that you and your four other co-founders had absolutely no experience in the sports gaming world. And there you are sitting in Scotland, marketing to the US (laughs) with probably no contacts in the US. Correct. So how did you make that work? It was just a lot of hard work, honestly. We did choose a really hard path. We chose to start a company. None of us had done that before. We chose to start a company in a different country, which is always difficult. We didn't have any connections with investors or anyone in the sports world. And we didn't even know the rules of of football, like American football. Like we knew nothing. So there was just a lot of, like, luckily I like reading. There was a lot of reading and a lot of learning, a lot of trial and error and just figuring out ways to make it work. You know, that's kind of what a startup's like. Every day it feels difficult. And then finally you get to a point where you think, oh, this might actually work. And for me at FanDuel, it was seven years in after we'd raised like almost $100 million. That was a point where I suddenly thought, oh, I can allow myself to believe that this is actually going to work at this point. Seven years in, that's incredible. I mean, how on earth did you sustain the motivation and the persistence? I think we just didn't really have a choice. We just felt like 
you know, we're both in this, we've invested our life savings in this. And if we don't make this work, like the thought of that was just too awful to contemplate. And we were in it together and we both had, there were five founders and each founder had their own sort of area of expertise. And we, we totally relied on each other and none of us would have quit because it would have meant leaving the other four in the lurch. That in itself must've been quite a triumph for you to have created such a great bond, not with just one other co-founder or two, but you had a total of five. That's no mean feat. Now, there you are, head of marketing and a co-founder in what sounds and feels like it would be a pretty blokey startup in a blokey world of tech. And sports. Yeah, and the blokey world of sports. <laughs> you know, What did you encounter being a woman? It's interesting. Very early on when it was just the five of us, we were in a pokey little university office and, you know, we were working every minute, every hour that God sent to try and make this thing work. You can imagine the state of that office after not very long, you know, dirty coffee mugs everywhere, just rubbish, you know, like papers everywhere, just a mess. And so much of me wanted to tidy. And my husband, Nigel, He's like, don't do it. I said, well, why not? It's disgusting. And he, he actually said, look, if you do that, if you start doing this now, that's going to be your job. And I said, oh, yeah, that's a good point. And he really helped me realize what women tend to do is take on those more motherly roles, which would be, oh, I'll get coffee. You know, I'll order the taxis. I'll order office furniture, you know, those sort of nurturing and caring things that we more naturally tend to do. But he said, you know, if you you do this, you're not going to have time to do your job. I said, that's really a point. And so I always made a real effort not to do any of those things. And as we started to hire more women into the team, and there weren't that many women in the team, but those that we did hire, and I could see them doing exactly the same thing our finance manager would organize taxis for the engineers. I'm like, your job is to look after the money. You're not there to book taxis for the guys. They can book their own taxi. So, uh, you know, I think we're, we're kind of our own worst enemies sometimes. Yeah. What brilliant advice your husband gave you. I know he's, he's amazing. He just has realized over the years that, you know, feminism is a man's issue. And it's up to men to make changes. He's very aware of what that can look like. Yeah. And what was it like in the boardroom? Because I think you took quite a lot of investment from a couple of VCs. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine, knowing what I know about VCs, that most of them were guys. So what was it like sitting in a boardroom with, you know, all guys and you? They were all guys. By the time we'd raised, I think it was Series E, we'd raised about $400 million and the boardroom was basically, I remember counting one day because it was such a lot of people in the room, but there were 19 men and me around the table. And at the time, I didn't really think much of it because it was, I guess it was a bit like boiling a frog where you just (laughs) kept adding more guys to the room. And it was only laterally when I start sort of thought wow that was that was a little crazy but you know even then there were times we'd always go out for dinner after a board meeting 
I remember sitting around this really big table in an Italian restaurant and the waiter would always come to me. Do you want more wine for the table? Do you want to taste this wine? You know, as if this was my job to look after all these men. And I would just look back at him and say, I, I don't know why you're giving this to me. This has nothing to do with me. So yeah, it's a strange situation to be in, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sadly for you, your co-founders and many of the members of your team who were shareholders, the FanDuel journey didn't end well, did it? When when the company was merged with Paddy Power Betfair at a valuation that really meant that none of the minority shareholders received a payment. That must have been completely gutting. How did it affect you personally? Completely gutting is, uh, I would say, putting it mildly, to be honest with you. You know, we'd all dedicated, and it wasn't just the founders, it was all the people in our team that had worked for 10 years to build the company from nothing. And it was pretty devastating, particularly when two years later, the company's valued at $11 billion. And there's currently a lawsuit going on at the moment, and obviously I can't really speak about it, but it's still incredibly painful. Yeah, I just can't imagine. What did you and Nigel do after that? How do you pick yourself up? Well, I think, you know, we had no choice. We had to start another business. We were back at square one. That's pretty much what we did. We both left FanDuel at the end of 2017. And Nigel started another business with one of our co-founders. And our other co-founder started a training business over on the West Coast. And I started a relationship coaching business. You know, I took a few months out to think about what does success mean? Because, you know, we weren't doing all of this crazy amount of work to make ourselves rich, but it would have been nice to have not had to go out immediately and start a new business or or get a job immediately. And I started to question, you know, what is important in life? What does success mean for me? And what do I want to spend the next 10 years of my life doing? And what I realized was that the journey of building FanDuel had been made possible by the relationships that we had with each other in the company, the founders and the employees. And we kept each other sane in amongst all the craziness. And the strength of those relationships was what really got me through and kept us all going and meant that none of us quit because we couldn't leave each other in the lurch. After a few months of thinking along those lines, I started to think, well, I know a lot about how you build a technology business. How can we think about applying that to relationships to help people strengthen bonds and somehow make everyone's somehow happier in the world. And those were the kind of thoughts that were going around in my head at the time. I don't know if I was completely lucid at the time, but, you know, really thinking about, I want to do something that A, puts a stamp on the world, but also B, just really helps people and makes the world better. I love that. And I just one quick question about the FanDuel experience. You know, for entrepreneurs listening and everything, they're probably going, is there one kind of fatal error that I need to avoid to sort of avoid the same thing happening to me? You know, was there a key lesson or was it just incredibly bad luck? I would say that whenever you take money, uh, external money, there are different types of investors. 
there are VCs who really believe in the value of the founding team. They really believe in creating value. And then there are investors like private equity investors where the founding team is a little bit more replaceable and they're really in this to make money and nothing else. And so, you know, people will say you should do your due diligence on your investors. And I don't think I ever really appreciated what that meant before fairly recently, but doing that due diligence and doing it thoroughly, really talk to people who have taken money or taken investment from these people and really understand how they operate and particularly how they operate when everything's not plain sailing. Finding companies on their portfolio where everything hasn't gone up and to the right and asking them, well, how did they, how did they react? What did they do? You know, if you needed to raise a bridge round, what did that look like? What were the terms that they demanded? And that can be quite eye-opening. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest lesson that I've learned through the whole experience. Thank you for sharing that because I'm sure it's painful to, to sort of think and relive, but, you know, it's such valuable advice. So thank you. Looking forward now, you, know, you started to tell us a bit about your new business. Can you summarize the idea of, of Relish and how it works for our listeners? Yes, we're a relationship coaching company. So we help people who value their relationship with their significant other to live their best life together. We help you with communication skills, feeling more connected, improving your intimacy, really just helping build that bond between the two of you. One of my biggest bugbears is that people leave it way too late before they go to couples therapy. We want to set a way that people can get help quickly, easily, affordably, accessibly, and hopefully it's not quite as painful as going to couples therapy. Who is Relish kind of designed for? Should it be for any couple? Yeah. So the nice thing about it is that when you download the app, we give you an assessment and we use your the information that you tell us to design a sort of customized advice plan for you. So if you're in a relatively healthy relationship, then you'll get more activities and lessons about, you know, how can you have more fun in your relationship? How can you add a little bit of spark back, a bit of inspiration? So that'll be the tone of the lessons and the advice that you're getting. If your relationship is more on the damaged end of the spectrum, then you'll learn more about how you can support each other, how you can both become more secure in your relationship, learning ways to communicate more effectively with each other, to be a better listener, be more, more empathetic, those type of things. So it's really catered for anyone that really values their relationship. And you know what we see is we get a lot of people where they're in a relationship that's just kind of lost its zest and needs a little bit of, of help getting back on track. And I'm thrilled that they're coming to us now before it gets to the point where it's beyond saving. I kind of think of it a little bit like if you break your leg and you don't do anything for a long time, there's more and more damage being done over time to that injury and it gets harder and harder and harder to heal. 
to fix it. And you've priced it pretty accessibly, haven't you? So it's a sort of like a subscription model annually, is that right? It's an annual subscription. So in the US, it's $100 a year, and that's for two people. So it's incredibly affordable. That was very, very important to me. Yeah. And I can really hear, you know, how passionate you are about this, which is phenomenal that you're doing something that feels like it's really aligned with your purpose. You've now done this three times starting a business, which is very impressive considering um, what happened in the second one. And what advice would you give to our listeners if they were considering starting their own business? Oh, good question. I think it depends on the type of business and like what outcomes you're really looking for. If you're looking for, you know, a lifestyle business that you have full control over and it's something that you're super passionate about, but it's maybe not your main source of income or, you know, you have a partner who's earning, that's one option. I think the VC route of taking external funding quite early is a very particular path. I think the press glorifies that path to a certain extent. And it's definitely not glamorous in any respect. It's a hard path to choose and you have to be prepared to make sacrifices and you have to be prepared to, you know, you get into this and you can't quit. You're all in. There is no exit door. (laughs) You, You know, you just have to find a way to make it all work. That's a decision that you have to make. Are you in this to build a business with uh, you know hundreds of people and and worth a billion dollars or are you just looking to make some money and make a profitable business but you know keep it small you need to know what you're getting yourself into and which one are you doing with relish i've taken external funding i am obviously a glutton for punishment <laughs> yeah we've raised seven million dollars from vcs in new york and california and we're building a big business here and I'm really excited about it. And you are on the train again. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you've already got pretty good traction, haven't you, with users in North America? Yes, yes. We've got about 300,000 downloads and, you know, people love it. And I said at the beginning that I don't like to brag, but people really, really love it. And that love from users is just so important to me to just keep us all going. And the team really appreciates all that feedback as well. So yeah, on the train again. On the train. And there you are, you've got three kids. You only lived in America for, I think it was, you say four years. How do you just juggle everything? And can I just add yeah. that Nigel's also doing another startup. Yes. So you're both in startups, but separately now. Yeah. So how do you juggle it all? Well, I think since we left FanDuel, we have gotten finally to a point where we are pretty much 50-50 in terms of household chores, looking after the kids, like house maintenance, all that sort of stuff. We've gotten to the point where we're finally 50-50, which makes the world of difference. And, you know, getting help, you know, if you have a, a babysitter or a cleaner, like just outsource as much of the non-critical stuff as possible. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a big proponent for that. (laughs) I've come around, definitely. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's, uh, I remember early days just thinking, I can do this all by myself. And very quickly, I realized, no, you can't, you can't do it all. You have to learn to focus and spend your time doing the things that are actually going to make a difference. Yeah. And also not only, you know, focus on those things, but also perhaps let go of those perfectionist tendencies that maybe you might have had at some point. 100%. Leslie, it's been such a joy talking to you. One of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests at the end of our conversations is, if you could go back in time, what would you tell your 30-year-old self? Ooh, 30. That's a hard question. What were you doing when you were 30? I had just had a baby and I was living in London. And yeah, what would I tell myself? I've always been the sort of person that doesn't have regrets. So there's nothing that I would go back and say, ooh, do this or don't do that. But, you know, I think I would just say, just chill out a bit. Don't worry so much. Everything's going to be fine. And, and I still believe that now, you know, I'm, I'm like, everything with FanDuel didn't work out the way that we hoped it would, but I'm healthy and I'm really happy and I've got a great family and I'm doing something that I love and money's not everything. So yeah, life's good. <laughs> that is such a wonderful message. Yeah, it's very refreshing. It really is. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Keep, keep laughing. You know, you just got to keep <laughs> laughing at the ridiculousness of life. Um, yeah, completely. Couldn't agree yeah. with you more. <laughs> so with that, let's see, how can listeners find out more about you and more about Relish? So you can download Relish in the App Store. You can find me on LinkedIn or you can go to hellorelish.com and find out more there. On that note, thank you so much. We really wish you huge amounts of success with Relish. We're sure that that's coming. And uh, we look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. It's great to meet the two of you. Thanks, Leslie. Thanks. Wow, that is such a story. One thing I know, if I was in a bind, I'd want Leslie Eccles on my team. She's just got so much resilience and resourcefulness. It's remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, let's hope that they get some joy out of that court case in terms of seeing some of the rewards that the subsequent owners of FanDuel went on to reap. You know, the thing that really amazes me is how she's been able to so successfully pick herself up and start all over again. Absolutely. And you can really hear the excitement in her voice when she talks about the potential for Relish, her relationship coaching app. Yeah. And well, it's been downloaded actually hundreds of thousands of times in the US and the UK already. And it's just launched in Australia too. Yeah. And I really like the idea of working proactively on the quality of your relationship with your significant other. You know, we do that with things like the gym we're proactive when we go to the gym but we don't do anything with something as important to many of us as our romantic relationships so it makes complete sense that you'd want to like dose it up with healthy habits yes so true we'll have all the details for you to look at on our show notes page that's this week's episode done and dusted 
Stay tuned next week for our next mini episode. And then we'll be back the week after with burnout expert and psychologist, Dr. Jacinta Jimenez. Oh, she's fantastic. Have a great week and have a great International Women's Day next Monday. In the meantime, stay safe, have fun and take care. Ciao for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.